3: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Bear Sage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kles. And Ed, on today's show, we're going to ask or pose the question, who's in charge of value in your firm? And, uh, you know, I, I love to ask this question of audiences because usually you get that momentary staring ovation yep. from people <laughs> and then somebody shouts out, well, everyone. And when they say that, I love to say everyone is in charge of value. If everyone owns something like I'm in California and they tell us we all own the golden gate bridge, if everybody owns it. What's that really mean? Nobody owns it. Cause I'd like to sell you my portion. And obviously I can't. And, that's kind of how this idea started to gestate in me. I started to think about who's in charge of value because we love to talk about pricing. Certainly, we love to talk about costing as you know, I'm a former cost accountant, but, but that's where this idea came from. And I just love posing that question to business audiences.
4: No, absolutely and your the your analogy is a good one. And same thing with public toilets too, right? Everybody owns public toilets, which would you rather use? <laughs> yours yours or the one out in public? But yeah, every if everybody's in charge of something, nobody's in charge of something. And of course, what's even worse, especially in professional firms that you and I tend to work with more, but this isn't exclusively, is everyone thinks they're an expert in pricing too. They like they like to think that they know what value is, and they like to think they know what customers are, and, and what I have come to the conclusion is the the longer that they're in a particular profession, the less and less they understand the actual value they create for customers.
3: Right, and and you know, Ed, this this um, whole idea behind a chief value officer. It, it, it went through a few iterations, but I don't know if I've ever told you the story of how the idea came about. It actually goes back probably. This has had to be like in 2000, and I was doing a pricing seminar for a legal association, and I don't. Know, it was like a half-day program, and and right in front there was a lawyer. His name was Mark. That's not his real name, but I'll just say his name was Mark. And every three or five minutes during my talk, for the whole half day, he kept saying, I can't do that. That would never work in my firm. My clients would never go for that. That that may work in some of these other firms, but that would never work in mine. In other words, whatever I was saying about pricing and marketing and economics, this guy just kept saying it would never work. And finally, I just got so frustrated listening to this guy. I just blew a fuse and I finally looked at him and said, you know, Mark, you're right. You can't do any of these pricing strategies because you view pricing as a drudgery. It's a chore to you. It's a limitation that prevents you from from you know capturing the value that you create. I said, if you were my partner, you'd be the last person whom I'd give responsibility for pricing. In fact, I wouldn't let you price at all. And that's when it hit me like a brick that we need to strip pricing from people like Mark. Who, who don't view it as a, an enormous opportunity to be paid what you're worth, but view it as a limitation. And that's kind of where this idea came from.
4: Well, right. And I think the, the first time that I remember encountering you talking about this, you used to first talk about it as a CPO, a chief pricing officer. Right. And then lead on and to the audience to say, well, and what we really mean, though, is that we need to create the position of chief value officer, which is one step above understanding price, but actually understanding the five C's of value as, as Dan Morris so eloquently laid them out for us last last week. And we'll, we'll probably get back into that topic from a slightly different perspective this week, uh, because I don't think we can talk about a CBO without talking about the five C's again to some
3: extent. Right, no, absolutely, uh, because the CVO is obviously going to be the person in charge of those five C's. But you got a good memory, Ed, because that's exactly right. I did start out talking about chief pricing officers. Um, You know, sometimes these are called revenue officers or revenue managers or yield management or whatever, but the chief pricing officer. But after this whole thing with Mark, and then the second iteration was our colleague, Paul Kennedy and of course our late colleague Paul O'Byrne, they run a firm in the UK chartered accounting firm and they actually set up I don't know if you remember the days but I used to advocate a pricing cartel and I actually used that term deliberately because I wanted you to think about fixing prices on purpose in your firm, that was kind of the whole idea that yes, you're going to act like a cartel, you're going to you know, not to collude with competitors obviously but to at least price you know, deliberately in your own firm. And after OBK set up one of these pricing cartels, they said they would sit around and they would be talking about pricing a particular customer. And somebody would say, uh, yell out, oh, that needs to be 12,000 pounds. And then somebody else would say 15,000. And Paul Kennedy said, I realized that we were becoming inward focused. It was about the price. It wasn't about the value. So they were actually the firm it changed the terminology from pricing cartel to value council and they started to establish a value council and he said it finally made us more outward focused on the customer where all value is it's outside of our four walls and that was the second iteration to how we came up with the value council and then the idea from cv for cvo grew out of that
4: yeah, and I always view CBO in most organizations as this this kind of uh, Supreme Court judge or something, you know, this, somebody who who goes to the meetings where we're talking about setting price and takes all of the input from all the constituencies and then retires to their chamber and then then kind of delivers the price after that. After but but it's always in the context of, of value. You know, the first question that we suggest that you ask before you set any price is what's the value to the customer? And if you don't know the answer to that question, well go back go back and get it. You can't right. you can't go any further. That which is why two weeks ago when we talked about crafting the value conversation, we found that that that, that was so important to have, because you can't really price without understanding value.
3: You really can. I mean, Peter Drucker uh, says, and I, I just love this, he says, what is value to the customer? It may be the most important question, yet it is the one least often asked. And he said, one reason is that managers are quite sure that they know the answer. Value is what they, in their business, define as quality. But this is almost always the wrong definition. The customer never buys a product or service by definition. The customer buys the satisfaction of a want. He buys value. And that's a very interesting point. And it's the question that's least often asked. But it's the most important question
4: well because it's it is thought to be inherent right the whole the whole notion is is that well we have this product it must have value again it's it's internal to external and not extern externally focused and and you you have to go outside the organization to to fully understand that uh, you know I, it's it is a a fascinating topic to to create someone at the c level for this and ron i i know for a fact that you're the the first person i ever heard talk about chief value officer. But I can tell you this, it's, it's, it's taken on a life of its own. If you, if you Google chief value officer, it's more than just Ron Baker books that you're going to run into now. I, I know.
3: I'm I I, <laughs> I, I I'm pretty proud of coming up with that. But it, it wasn't, I mean, it was just a whole bunch of things coming together. They, and I guess it is because of our work, Ed, with uh, professional firms where, you know, in the typical professional firm, like say an accounting firm, law firm, where you have partners, each partner gets the price just because they're a partner, right? And yet, most of them suck at it. And it dawned on me that, you know, businesses are built based upon division and specialization of labor. Like Adam Smith pointed out, you know, you, you let people uh, do what they're really good at. And I thought to myself, why are we letting people price who suck at it? This is crazy. I mean, at least in golf, if I'm a crappy golfer and I'm put on your team, well, at least I have a handicap. But the handicap for a crappy pricer in a firm is money out of everybody else's pocket. And I just think that's unacceptable. And that's when it dawned on me that somebody needs to be in charge of this, and hence the CVO role. Um, and, and like you said, I, I, I think of the CVO as the eyes, ears, and throat of the customer. You know, the kind of person who runs around like a broken record and says, why are we doing this? Is this creating any value for the customers? And if not, then it's waste. And we probably should get rid of it, or reengineer it, or do something else, and and that's that's kind of how I think about that role.
4: But you do think it's different from, say, like a, a chief customer officer, though, or a chief customer experience officer, or have they, in a sense, uh, melded in your mind a little bit?
3: I I, I don't know because I you know I, I've been. Looking at some things around the chief experience officer, and I know Sage has one, right?
4: Right, we do. Yep, great yeah, guy, maybe, Brad Smith. Give a little okay. shout
3: out there. Oh, great! <laughs> and maybe we can get Brad on the show because I'd love to hear about some of his functions. Because th- to me, the customer experience officer, and the only one that I'm kind of familiar with, is BMW has one. It's called the he's called a CEO customer experience officer, and what they tend to look at is the product experience obviously, of owning the product, the purchase experience, the whole branding experience, the support experience of the whole dealer network and maintenance and warranties and all of that, and the exit experience. What happens when you don't repurchase a BMW? Why does that happen? Or why don't you purchase it in the first place and maybe you buy a competitor? And then, of course, they tend to also look at the employee experience and that's how I think of the customer experience officer. The CVO to me is more directly involved with value and and capturing that value. The pricing role, um, but have they morphed in your mind?
4: They haven't, and they, and they 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 clearly are. There's a lot of overlap, though, right? There because what, well, especially with professional firms, because the the experience often is the same thing as this, as this the product. Right, it, 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 right. It, it is. It is the same one and the same. So I, I think that that it, for professional firms and but let you know, broadening this this conversation out to a company like Sage. Well, no, we 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 clearly have products that that we sell, and there there is an experience around those products. You know, one of the most profound things that Brad has ever said to me, which which you know really hit me, is you know the the customer experience is most often people entering transactions into the, to a system. That's, that's Mm -hmm, what it is. mm -hmm, Right. Right? So, and, and we don't, we, we like to think of it as the people interaction, but it's not always right. There's, there's other, other things and it's all encompassing. And that's where I think this, this value chief value officer uh, steps in, in a slightly different role because, it may not be looking specifically at the product. It's really more looking at that satisfaction of a want that, that Drucker talked about. That we're, we're tr- what is that want? What, what can, how can we creatively think around that want uh, to create things that, that would be of value to them?
3: Right. And, and the other thought that I had about the CVO role was you know, even though they may work with a value council, uh, I wanted one throat to choke. I wanted one guy or one person to be responsible for pricing. And like you say, to do the final deliberation and basically to have the tie vote. And And that was another um, idea behind it. And of course, when we come back, folks, we need to take a break. But when we come back, we, we will uh, revisit the five C's. But as Ed said, we'll do it in a different context. And in the meantime, remember that you can follow the show at Verisage.com dot 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 com, com, com slash tsoe i will post show notes every week and uh you can also email myself or ed at tsoe at verisage.com and also you can follow the show live on twitter at hashtag ask tsoe and put in a comment or or a question for ed or myself and in the meantime we want to hear from our sponsor leading results
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us.
1: Game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive. They shake up your status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern for our special series on Industry Cloud Trends. Join us to learn about the next wave of industry-specific solutions moving into the cloud. Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP on The Business Channel.
2: Always talking business, talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
4: And, of course, you can hashtag AskTSOE to ask a, a question during the show, and we'd be happy to do so. And even if you're listening to the show as an archive, which many of our listeners do, we're happy for you to do that as well. But uh, please do use the hashtag Ask TSOE, and we can certainly return to the a topic, a question that you might have, especially on our Free Rider Fridays, which we have coming up in two weeks. Uh, those of you who were expecting Joe Pine today, since we did do an initial blast about Joe Pine being on the show, unfortunately he could not make it due to a consulting engagement that he was involved in, so instead we will have Joe Pine on on March 6th, so we're looking forward to having him, which is fine, because it gives me an more time to prep. I was reading a little bit of the the book, Ron, and I got to tell you, it, it's it's very meaty. And I was <laughs> this will give us a chance to give us much better
3: treatment. Right, right. You, and and you know, I don't feel too bad for Joe having to cancel because he's in Venice, Italy. Yeah, so, sucks you know, to be him. I suppose t- 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 tough, tough, tough assignment. But Ed, you're working your way through the customer experience book. Yes, uh huh. Uh-huh. They expanded. Yeah, he's come yeah. out with the second edition. He's got a second book, folks, called The Laws of Managing, which is, it is a relatively short book and, and very, very thought-provoking. And then he's also got a, a more recent book called Infinite Possibility. And I'm actually working my way through that one, Ed, and I'm telling you, it's it's really, really good. It's all about how to create value in a digital world. And he's got this very interesting framework. It's complex, but I, it's it's right on and he's given some great examples i just can't wait to talk to this guy he's going to it's going to be a great show
4: yep uh, well, well value value creation is complex let's face it it's a complex thing which is which is why we're suggesting that value become a core competency in your organization and, and why you take that value and extend that then to to that person being in charge then of pricing as well and uh, let's let's revisit Ron quickly. The, the the five C's of value. Dan talked about them as I said really well last week, and I in I think a very specific instance. But I think we can back out a little bit, maybe take a slightly higher view than 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 he did. And they are. And, and by the way, we owe this, of course, to Tom Nagel and Reed Holden, uh, because this comes from the strategy and tactics of pricing. And it's the, the first is comprehend value to customers. The second is create value for customers. Third is communicate the value you create. Four is convince customers that they must pay for value. And then five is capture the value with strategic pricing based on value and not costs and efforts. So, Ron, why don't you, you touch on maybe the first couple of those, comprehend value to customer.
3: Yeah, and Ed, I think this all revolves around Drucker's idea of the marketing concept, you know, this idea that all results in, in, in any organization are external, right? I know we've talked about this before, but the idea that the results of a hospital or a cured patient, the result of a school, you know, an educated child, the result of a church, a safe soul, all of these things take place outside of the four walls. And that's what I like either about whether you call it a chief value officer or a customer experience officer, somebody inside the organization is actually forced to look outside, You know, we've talked about this constantly, but it's just amazing to me how, how few organizations, as they get more, you know, as they, as they grow and get bigger, they start to turn inward and they stop looking outside. And so that's what these five C's are really designed to do is direct the, the focus outside on the customer. So comprehending the value drivers of your customers, really understanding at a deep level, whether you sell a product or service or some combination thereof, it doesn't matter, but comprehending what the value drivers are to your customers, like you said about the transactions, the features and the benefits that really, really matter to them. You know, one thing I learned about studying car companies is they're kind of their masters at understanding the psychology be- behind what's important in in picking out a car. and it's very subtle things like how well you think the door closes <laughs> hey you know, i know how how so- and, and and you know that alpha sound alpha. it's even a it's a it, sound it, it's it, not even
4: it's, it's not even something that you can look at it's a sound you hear
3: it is and and lexus is a company like lexus is fanatical about things like this so the hinges they use and other things they do to make that sound really really solid uh, because it's those types of decisions that might push a customer over into to buying a car or not, which is fascinating. And I think that's what we mean by that comprehension is really understand it. And, and you know, I'm reminded of what uh, I think both Stanley Marcus and even J.W. Marriott used to say this, you know, understanding the customer can't be done from the inside of your office and it can't be done just looking at data. You got to go out and talk to people get out from under your desk and actually Absolutely. talk to the, talk to people.
4: And what, what I think this is so critical this is where that the, the whole concept of the value gap exercise I think comes into play to, to understand that that value creation piece and to yes, you can talk about it inside your organization to a certain extent and I've often had some very successful consulting engagements where I've I've gone in with people doing the value gap exercise and have had and had conversations where they start to realize oh, my gosh, we've been creating millions of dollars worth of value for some of these customers. And and it's it's mind-blowing in a lot of senses to them. And my suggestion when I leave is always, okay, this is great that we just did this internally. Now go actually talk to them.
3: Right. Now go have a conversation. Yep, yep. That that whole create, you know. And another thing I learned from the Disney University about how they think about creating value. So the second C, the creating value for customers, is they use this analysis called moments of truth, where they try and figure out every point of contact uh, that a, a guest could have in a park. And just one example that sticks in my mind, because they use this at the university as an example, is when they initially opened Epcot, which I I don't know, came in 1981 or 82 or something. I think Disney World opened in 74. And one of the things the guests didn't like about Epcot, the, the kids, was there were no characters. So they didn't have those moments of truth with Mickey and Goofy and all the characters. And that taught them that, yeah, we needed to get more characters into Epcot, so now they have a, a, a really well-balanced uh, distribution of, of characters because they realize that's a critical moment of truth in, in, as part of the experience of going to a Disney park.
4: Right, right, absolutely. And then the third C, of course, then is communicate that value to your customer. And this is, I, I suppose, to some extent where the, the what has traditionally been known as the marketing function comes in. And that is to to talk about what this experience is is going to be, and how critical it is for the messaging to be so crisp and on on point you know one of the things that I think you and I both see about professional firms is you go to their websites and they're just they say the same thing and completely boring right and 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 they all say they want to be a trusted advisor you know we'll we'll have to do a sh- another show on that someday right. but But how is it that they're actually communicating that value back to the customer? This, I think, of the five Cs, this is the one that I actually struggle with the most. Because how, how does one communicate back the value to the customer? It, I find that to be difficult.
3: It, it is and it's the one I struggle with the most as well because I you know when I when I come to this sea, I think of Tim Williams and I think of you know how he talks about the brand and a brand can only stand for one thing and you've got to be completely consistent in your messages and you, you know you can't sell Rolls Royces and Chevy's out of the same dealership. But I but I think another and, and you're right, I think you know a lot of professional firms, their websites all look the same. Heck their business cards look the same. <laughs> Paul Dunn used to do this exercise where he'd gather up all the CPA's business cards in a room when he gave a talk, and guess what? They 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 all practically looked the same and he used to tease people he'd go oh look at this one's got raised letterings at least you know and (laughs) and (laughs) it really upset some people but he was right and you know the other thing is I I, I don't think firms do a good job communicating because I mean they wrap everything into an hourly rate and that just like it commoditizes you into an hourly rate and it, it just makes it so much easier for you know, customers to sit back and then start comparing firms based on an hourly rate rather than other, you know, really differentiating factors about the relationship that that makes your firm different. So the communication is one I struggle with too because I think it's really, really difficult and, you know, very few, at least professional firms, I think, do a very effective job at communicating value. Because they're too focused internally, or they're too focused on efforts.
4: It's it's beyond that, Ron. It, because because it, what we 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 do talk about professional firms an awful lot, and perhaps we should back off a little bit about that. Be, uh, but l- let's face it, businesses do a do a fairly crappy job overall of of communicating that value. Go to any website, and it's going to be very difficult for you to find the value proposition on their site.
3: Right, right. No, it's it's a fair point. And then, of course, the fourth one is convince customers that they must pay for value. And the thing that I think is really important here and and another vital role of the CVO is to maintain the pricing integrity of a company. Just like the marketers protect the brand integrity, the CVO's got to protect That pricing integrity, and and I'm reminded, and maybe we can post this on the show notes. It's a video clip. It's it's a documentary um, on Marriott behind the scenes. And in one segment of this, I think it was an hour show, they interview the the chief revenue management officer across all of I think it's North America Marriott. And the journalist asks him a question. He says, "Okay, say I come into the hotel. It's it's midnight." You've got some rooms available. They're 300 bucks a night. And he says, and I offer you 200. I say, how about 200? Will you take 200? And this pricing guy looked at this journalist and he said, no, never, absolutely not, never. He said, that's called the fade. And, And the guy's like, what? There's a term for it? He said, yep, it's called the fade. And he says, and nobody does it anymore. He said, there's a few, but we don't really like that. He said, because if we accept that, if we take your $200, then he says, we've just trained you not to book in advance. And he said, that's crazy. And I have to say, it as a former cost accountant, any cost accountant would look at that question and say, absolutely take the $200 because it's better to get 200 than let the room go empty. And that's not how our pricer thinks at all.
4: No, not at all. And in fact, when we come back from this break, I, I want to uh, tell the story uh, uh, about this as well because my, my big challenge is that we allow salespeople to do the same same thing on a on a regular basis. But we are up against a break here, so we would like to to take that as well. But if you do want to get a hold of us, you can always use hashtag AskTSOE during the show, and there are some nice tweets coming in. want to give some shout-outs to some Folks who've uh, who we've been talking to, uh, and I appreciate their their uh, Jared especially. Thanks for your, your tweet. But uh, you can also send us questions at tsoe at verisage and of course show notes and that type of thing can be found at verisage slash tsoe. But right now we're going to hear from our friend Peter Wolf and Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul
2: business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network
0: you are tuned into the soul of enterprise with Ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e Now, back to the Soul of Enterprise.
4: (laughs) So, Ron, our friend Don says, uh, you can't talk about value and then force some customer to go through some insane automated phone tree. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy enjoy our conversation about value, but first, a little Hall and Oates. Yeah, the best of for an hour and a half. And your business is
3: important to us. Please stay Yeah, don't
4: forget, your business is important to us. Uh, and now more from Barry Manilow. No, I, I kind of like Barry Manilow, i got to admit. All right, but uh, we, before we, we – I said I was going to talk about salespeople. And one of the things that, in my observation, it happens, especially in the industry that I've been around that's software, is this idea and notion that somehow software salespeople have been involved in the pricing process. Which makes me crazy. I mean, why, why would you give the pricing function to someone whose job it is to sell stuff? You know, what do you think they're going to do? Well, they're going to sell stuff. And what I mean by this is giving them the pricing function of the, this word that I absolutely hate, and that is, of course, discount. Great. Right. Right? To, to the point where it has become so ubiquitous in... Software and other that, that you that we say well it's it's it, we just have to because it's just part of the business it's part of the business now we have to give a discount instead of looking at this from the perspective that we talk about, which is to give people choice right give people choice no it's about giving discounts because it's the end of the month at the end of the quarter, and I said, do you realize how insane this is just first of all you're 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 giving you're saying that your price is based on the position of the earth. In its revolution around the sun, <laughs> right? Yeah, <no. laughs> that our price, our price. That part of the function of pricing is where is the Earth in the yep. journey around the sun, and that functions into how we set price. Yep. Right? I mean this this is this is this, it, it, it's it's astronomy astrology. It's, it's just outright <laughs> astrology. You know, we make fun of people for this, but that but that's absolutely what it is. Discounting based on a date. Is astrology? That's all and, it is.
3: And you trained your customers just and like that's the, guys the
4: second f- part. You've trained it, your customer now to constantly ask for a discount forever in the future.
3: Done. And, and Ed, what's the statistics that Reed Holden? He talks about this a lot because I guess he's got some clients who are software uh, publishers. It, it's an astonishing number of the percentage of sales that happened in that last week of the quarter or whatever.
4: It's crazy, and a lot of you know this is enterprise software in a lot of cases. I mean, we're not talking about you know the the low end here. We're talking the the, my experience is mid market and upper end. Right? Do people buy an ERP solution as we like to do it or accounting? Do they buy it because it's on sale? Really? I mean, the the way I've always viewed it, it's sort of it would be like buying you know a triple bypass surgery because it's on sale that month. Nobody nobody does a new accounting implementation because because it's on sale. sale. Nobody yep. does triple bypass surgery cuz it's on sale. In fact, if the heart surgeon said, "Hey, we got a, you know, three valves for yep. the price of two special <laughs> going yep. on this month," you'd be like, "Don't freaking touch me."
3: You can get a 2 for 1 <laughs> divorce this week or yeah, <laughs> <Yeah. yeah. laughs>
4: Or, you know, my dad had bypass surgery 5 years ago. What if he said, "We got a, this father-son special going on." <laughs>
3: You know when I first, and this is another reason the CVO role kind of germinated in my mind as well. But when I started working with Professional Pricing Society, there was a huge debate, and I think this debate is kind of never-ending over should pricing be centralized and giving given over to a, a group of centralized people, or should it be distributed either amongst the salesmen or a combination thereof, and. And Ed, my my reading and my research and my empirical evidence tell me it needs to be centralized for precisely some of the reasons you said. You know, salespeople are paid to make sales. Quickest way to make the sale, cut the price. Well, that drives pricing people nuts because that degrades your integrity. And so I think that's a big part of convincing the customers they must pay for value is to give them really well-defined choices and, of course, the difference between those choices, pricers call fences, right? So it's kind of like the fence between a business-class seat and a first-class seat and all of that. And then, of course, capturing the uh, value with with uh, pricing strategies, and that's another uh, critical role of, of the CVO.
4: Right, and, and in a sense – Choices is that, that fifth C, right? The, not choice being the fifth C. Capture is the fifth C. Uh, but but creating cho- choices around that is one of the ways that you capture the maximum value by giving people choice in their pricing.
3: It, it, and, and not only that, Ed, but it, it also convinces them that they must pay for value. It, it forces the customer to convince themselves because if you're a gold card American Express holder and you want some of those platinum offerings you know you like the restaurant ability to get a five-star reservation the same day or a broadway play if you called up american express said i'm a gold card holder but i like those features they'd say well great step up and buy a platinum card they they wouldn't they wouldn't unbundle you know this whole idea of bundling uh, unbundling kind of drives me crazy as a pricer I, i mean i know the airlines do it with with luggage and things like that but at least in a professional world, it doesn't make sense to do unbundling. I think bundling is the whole point because then it forces people to make very deliberate value price tradeoffs.
4: I agree, and even to the point where I think we need to bundle like travel in it just in one price. Forget about it; so much easier.
3: Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So.
4: So, so there has been some experimentation run with some organizations adopting this chief value officer, and one of the things that you've noticed, I think this is a really interesting thing that you've come up with over the years, is that there seems to be some characteristics of people who are in this role of chief value officer, and they, they spell out. Lacey, I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but <laughs>
3: but uh, <laughs> I think it's and, the same way you got Ford. Ed, yeah, uh, but, just, it just, know, happenstance. just It just happened.
4: It would, yep, yep. Okay, yep. and they are leadership, attitude, commitment, experimentation, and youth. So let's let's deal with those in order quickly. First, le- leadership. Talk about what you mean when you mean a chief value officer needs to be in a leadership.
3: Well, I think the first thing is they have to have that self-esteem. We've talked about self-esteem in a prior show, or self-respect, whatever you want to call it. But they but they have to have that. They have to believe that there's great nobility in being paid what you're worth. But beyond that, what I found, because as you know, pricing is, is a multidisciplinary function. I mean, you've got to partly think like a cost accountant a little bit. You have to think like... Uh, an actuary, because if you're pricing risk, you have to think like an economist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, all of these things. So you need leadership skills. You need to have respect and credibility across multiple functions in the organization, because you're going to be dealing with all of them, R&D, marketing, sales, finance, all of that. And so people better listen when you speak. You better have some type of, you know, gravitas when it comes to that. And, it, that that's what I meant by the leadership. You have to you have to be well respected by multiple groups within inside the organization.
4: Do you think there's a factor of some of the Howard Hanson, Steve Jeske stuff? Uh, you know, our friends of ours who we've we've had on the show prior uh, uh, that there there's got to be a non anxious factor.
3: Oh Ed, absolutely. In fact, uh, I I want to read some of the lessons that one of the world's first, at least that I know of, one of the world's first CBOs, uh, he wrote a little blurb for me in one of my books about what he's learned, and, and we'll share some of those insights. And I was just looking at those prior to the show, and I was exactly thinking Howard Hansen's book, Healing Leadership, this is a non-anxious person.
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's part of the, 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 the important characteristics. So we'll get, we'll get those, those, those uh, things posted up. But next up is attitude.
3: And, and just one more quick thing on the leadership one. It, it, you know, like you said, you you want this person in the CVO role to have the tie boat to have the ultimate responsibility. Yes, he can, he or she can have a value council below them, but but they get ultimate responsibility. And and again, the reason is we want one throat to choke, but also because of what Margaret Thatcher said. It's one of my favorite lines from her is, "Consensus is the negation of leadership. Yeah. And somebody needs to take responsibility and make a decision." And that's what that's what leaders are paid to do, right? Partly to make decisions.
4: Yep. Well, a- attitude would be next, and certainly your friend Mark uh, did not have that attitude.
3: No, no, <laughs> not at all. He, <laughs> uh, you know, didn't didn't uh, just just didn't have this idea that pricing. You know, I think the big thing about attitude first, Ed, is that not a zero sum mentality but an abundance mentality right isn't it one of stephen covey's seven habits of highly effective people mm-hmm. to have an abundance mentality and not a zero sum and i think that that has to be certainly one of the biggest attitudes inside of a cvo but then they also talk about this these five levels of learning you know that we all go through when we're learning whatever skill that that you have you know obviously there's awareness and then there's awkwardness and then there's application, and then there's assimilation, and then there's finally the art, right? And that's whether you talk about the 10,000-hour rule like what Gladwell does or whatever, but you know, ultimately pricing is an art. Uh, and, and I think that's the attitude that pricers need to bring to it.
4: And, and I guess it's, it's also just a positive attitude about things. But I guess, you know that, that leads back into the zero-sum thinking. That you, I, I don't think a pricer could be a negative, ne- negative Nelly. <laughs> really? no, and, he,
3: and he couldn't think he was ripping people off. Yes. Like, you, you, can, you can rest assured that, yeah, Apple makes, by any definition, windfall profits.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And you can bet their pricers are proud of that. And rightfully so. I'm sure so. they are. Yep. And rightfully so. They should be proud of that.
4: Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting when we bring, bring Apple into the mix. I, I, I think that they, more than anyone, just uh, show, show this, this example of, of, of pricing leadership and what it really means to have. Do they have a chief value officer? I'm, I'm going to have to look that up.
3: I, I, they do have a pricing group. I know that. I don't know what they call it, but they do have professional pricers embedded in right. Apple. I, I remember when they priced the iPod. People on the blogosphere in the Apple you know world were saying, "What's iPod stand for?" Idiots price our devices because you know it was three times the price of comparable MP3 players back when it came out in 2001. What was it like? Three ninety nine
1: mm-hmm. or four
3: ninety nine? You could buy an MP3 for one seventy or something. And yeah, that was a deliberate pricing strategy because they knew that high prices tempt, and a high price would. Would communicate here we go with communication, but a high price would communicate that this MP3 player was different. It wasn't a Sony, it wasn't a Panasonic. it's an apple. Come down and look at it.
4: And, and it, it, the other thing about that is it was released October of 2001. <laughs> I know it? right after September 11th. I mean, it's just just insane. And there were 35 or so other players in the marketplace at the same time. Was and, it that many?
3: Was it thirty yeah, five? I didn't completely realize it was that
4: fra- many. Fra- completely fragmented, and we're not talking about like little small companies. It was a company called um, I don't know if I can remember the company name, but the 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 uh, the, the sound blaster was their thing, and they're still around. They make the sound blaster, make the best sound cards, right.
3: yes, right. Yes.
4: But, but they had this thing called a jukebox, and th- that right, right. Was, was priced at like two hundred bucks or something and had, I think, double the capacity of what the iPod was, but it, it, it was huge it, it, compared to an iPod, right? Sure, it was, and it sure. looked stupid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, here, here's Apple coming into the marketplace with, with uh, again, doubling the price of their, their nearest competitor in, an, in, in a uh, fragmented market. But we do have one more break to take, and when we come back, we'll talk about the second or the last of the, t- the two parts of Lacey, uh, commitment and youth, and we'll we'll be back. But first a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: For new employees. increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S., these are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today.
2: Conversations concerning money can be a bit daunting. There can be limitations with building wealth, and in general, people don't want to discuss their money until now. Listen each week for Conversations with Money featuring Franco Caligiuri and Marissa Sipolinski. Our guests make money the conversation piece how to build and maintain wealth, working with charities and money and family members. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, 4 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. Talking business, talk to an expert. Call now toll free, 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now back to the Soul of Enterprise.
3: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here talking about who's in charge of value in your organization, and we're really kind of drilling down on successful characteristics of what we're calling the Chief Value Officer role, the CVO, and. We're talking about the characteristics that I've kind of developed over the years, just observing people in this role and being constantly asked. So I've been really forced to think about it. What are some of the successful characteristics of a CVO or somebody who works as a pricer? And this acronym LACI, um, which we talked about the first couple, which is leadership and attitude. And then the C stands for Ed Commitment. And what I mean by this is, you know, you have to be committed to pricing. Which means you have to be willing to make mistakes and realize that sometimes your performance is going to suffer. And sometimes, yeah, you're going to leave money on the table. Uh, again, back into that, Or oh, wait, wait, wait. I
4: have, to, I have to jump in. Or worse, you're going to have to sit, you're, you're going to lose some deals because you didn't price yes. it appropriately.
3: That's right. That person's going to walk out who wanted to pay you $200. And, 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 and I think that's another thing, too. The pricers understand that no business is in the long run better than bad business or, you know, business practices that train the customers in the wrong way or degrade your pricing integrity. Um, But but I think the other thing about commitment is you have to understand that you're going to make mistakes and, yeah, you're going to leave money on the table. And like that guy from Marriott said, it makes him physically ill that that's what i want in a pricer i want a pricer who's going to be physically ill if they leave money on the table and and i think the other really essential role is this is a fascinating topic and it is a multidisciplinary topic and you need to really be constantly learning about it you know whether that's reading books and there's many more pricing books out there folks than there was even 15 years ago um when i go to a professional pricing society conference they always have a bookstore and i'm just amazed at the new titles that come out every single year on this. There's many more people writing about it, so there's a lot more information out there. And you should belong to organizations like the Professional Pricing Society because they're dedicated to educating uh, people in this in this area. And it's it's quite an organization that puts on some great educational events. So I think that whole commitment is is really important.
4: Looking forward to you coming down
3: in May, Ron. There's one right here in Dallas. There is. It's in May and I'm actually, I've got the, on, I was honored to be asked to keynote uh, at that conference and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. So that'll be fun. And then the E in Lacey Ed stands for experimentation. And, you know, the, this idea that, well, that's the way we've always done it. That, you know, that CVOs have nothing but contempt for that. That's the way we've always done it. They're constantly experimenting. And you have to with pricing, especially in the digital age we live in. You know, one person I just had a conversation with a few days ago, and he's going to be on the show. I'm excited to announce the week after Joe Pine, which is uh, March 13th, a gentleman by the name of Robert Cross. He was the person who brought yield management into Delta Airlines. And He's been doing a lot of work in the digital world, and he's saying, you know, consumers have a lot of information on pricing, but it also gives producers a lot of room to experiment with getting the right price to the right customer at the right time. And so an attitude of experimentation, you have to be willing to try. And if you fail, you fail. At least you're going to learn from it and, and do something better next time. So I think that's another really important characteristic. Yeah, we got to be sure to ask him about the whole Julian Simon thing. Yes, oh, oh, we will. I mean, this guy is known as the guru of revenue management, and he is the one that brought it to Delta Airlines. And Delta wasn't the first airline to to adopt it. I think it was AA. But uh, his story is just absolutely fascinating, and he's just a legend in pricing circles. So, looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, and. You know, he actually has a theory, Ed, and I've talked to him about it as well, and we'll ask him about it. But that he uh, quoted somebody in one of the papers he wrote that said, "There's a we have found a correlation between musical ability and pricing skills." Now, I'm skeptical of this because I have a tin ear. (laughs) I I know you sing and play the piano, and you're you're a great singer, so. who knows? There might be something to it. Maybe I'm not as good a pricer as I. I was, think. Gonna, I was
4: gonna say, Ron, I got I got some news for you. You're not as good a pricer <laughs> as you think. I'm kidding. Maybe but lastly, la, lastly, our last one. We're, we're coming up on the on the end of the show here, and I think this one is might be the most shocking of the five characteristics of a
3: CBO, and that is youth. Yes, and and Ed, you know, this is a fascinating topic. I think we this deserves a whole show, but. You know, and it, and it comes from me reading Charles Murray's book. We've mentioned this book. We, we mentioned it to Thomas Sowell. He was intimately familiar with it. He loves the book. But one of the things that Charles Murray points out in this book, Human Accomplishment, is that if you look at really incredible human accomplishment, the median age is 40 years old. In other words, once you cross over 40, innovation drops off. Folks, we're not saying that you can't teach an old dog a new trick. It's more don't expect an old dog to come up with a new trick to add to the repertoire. And the historical evidence for this is, is just overwhelming. I mean, just, just some basic facts. The average age of the Manhattan Project scientists, 25. Albert Einstein, when he developed his theory of relativity, was 26. In fact, there's a joke among, among physicists that once you pass 30 you're past your prime in terms of coming up with a, a Nobel Prize you know, uh, discovery. Um, if you look at the signers of the Declaration of Independence, their average age was 45, a bit skewed by a, guy na- uh, by a guy named Ben Franklin who was 70, and he was certainly an outlier. But, Ed, there's certainly something to this age in innovation. And all I'm saying with the Lacey criteria is get some young people Either in the role of CVO or on the value council, because you'll get that spark of new ideas and and possibly innovative ways of looking at something.
4: Do you think it could just be an outsider factor, uh, partially? I mean, uh, that you know, older people who are in a particular profession, whatever that happens to be, tend to be the ones that know it the most intimately and have, have therefore lost sight of the value that they're creating in the current marketplace. Um, you know, one, one of the, and just as a side note to that, one of the things that we do talk about is if you're a sole prop out there, and say, you know, how is it that I gonna be gonna be able to create a chief value officer? I'm just one one person running an organization. We suggest that you run pricing by your spouse or significant other, even if they know nothing about the business, because at least in theory, they value you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right. So yeah. do you think there's an outsider influence I, to this? I, I
3: do, Ed, and I also think it's something we talked about with Dan that, you know, that younger people might be more willing to lead with their ignorance. You know, remember we talked about how Drucker approaches a consulting job not from his knowledge but from his ignorance. I think that's easier when you're younger than when you're older because you, there's more ego involved and you just know more. Like Dan said, it's part of who we are and we can't leave it at the door. Um, and, and, and so I, it's, it's kind of a complex topic and I know it's really off putting to hear. You know, if you're past 40, you're probably not going to come up with a super innovation. But I have to say the empirical evidence is overwhelming for this if you really look at the data or, or the, you know, and, the, and the numbers. Um, and I have to say I'm uncomfortable with it because obviously I'm over 40. Uh, <laughs> so it doesn't make me feel good to say this. But I, I do think it's really important to put some young people in, in this role.
4: Yeah, in the area of creativity, I, I absolutely do think that we need some some outside voice, and and youth is is as definitely a way to capture some of that spark, as you say, and and just energy too.
3: Yes, absolutely. So, folks, that's kind of where we are with who's in charge of value. Basically, what we're saying is somebody needs to own it because if everybody owns it, nobody owns it. It's, like Ed said, it's, think public toilet, right? Uh, and it, having a CVO, having those eyes and ears outside of the firm, constantly looking at ways to improve the customer experience and value to the customer, I think that really gives you a competitive advantage. Plus, another thing it does, Ed, is it really sends a strong signal to your competition that you're not going to engage in price wars. Yep. If you're out there communicating value, that's the farthest thing from your mind is engaging in a price war.
4: Absolutely. Say, so, Hey, what do we got next week, Ron?
3: Next week, Ed, we're going to do innovating your business model. So we're going to define a business model, and then we're going to walk through some various ideas about how you can innovate your business model because we happen to think, folks, that your business, business models are what's really Uh, disruptive threats to your industry. It's not so much new technology, but it's new business models. So I'm really looking forward to exploring that with you, Ed.
4: Uh, right, Right back at you, my friend. Well, I guess I'll see you in 167 hours. Excellent.
3: This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage Supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, where we'll be discussing innovating your business model. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at Verisage.com for more information on each show. And feel free to uh, contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. Thank you for listening, folks, and have a great week.